this morning. Uh, thank you so much, worship team. Wherever y'all went, they're all uh, probably getting the restroom. Are, are we good? I'm seeing a little bit of panic in the back uh, booth. Am I am I good? Or is, it's it's green. It's all lit up like it's on. You want to grab a handheld and uh, and we'll go that route. Uh, let's do that. How's that? We will. Yeah. So uh, of course. Um, now the other one will start working. That's just the way it goes. So, good morning. Uh, wonderful to be together. Uh, thanks, worship team. That was quite a time together. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Go ahead and say thank you. That's okay. You can do that. Yeah. You're good. Hey, welcome. Uh, Christmas is nearly here, and uh, it's mornings like this that uh, what I feel like God's prepared for me to say, which work has gone into that, um, sort of gets discombobulated a slight bit as we worship together. And I, there are Sundays where I feel like um, maybe the best thing I can do is just add color to the painting we just painted together and then kind of get out of the way. So uh, let, let's see if I can uh, do that um, well this morning. Hey, Tuesday is Christmas Eve, and not just for shameless plugging, but for the sake of gathering together in the presence of God and together, uh, come back and join us on Tuesday. We want to worship with you on Tuesday. We want to experience that together. And Christmas Eve with disciples is a little bit unique. It's not, it's not a reboot of our experience on Sunday. It's a, it's a pretty different liturgy that we experience together, and it is a hard 60 minutes. And when I mean that, I I mean, uh, we don't go overtime on that, and so we schedule it accordingly that as you begin to make plans with your family for Christmas Eve, you can tell them anywhere in the Sacramento region, you can be there by five. Uh, that I can promise you, and you don't even have to speed. Um, so uh, we will have just a wonderful time together in that hour, and I think you'll be glad that you came. And as you can see, there's a seat open next to you, so bring family Bring friends with you. Uh, we do need some help around here that day. And so on your feedback card this morning, if you would let us know how you could help out that day, specifically we need some women and or men who would help us with ushering. Uh, we tend to have people here on Christmas Eve that aren't normally with us and will need help finding their way around. And uh, you don't need training to be an usher, though if you get here a little bit early, we'll show you the ropes. It's simply just making people feel welcome and helping them find a seat making sure it doesn't get too hot or cold in the room. So help us out with that. Um, it's going uh, to be a time together on Tuesday as we celebrate the Advent and really at the heart of Advent, at the heart of what this Advent season is, uh, is Emmanuel, God with us. The celebration of God's presence with us of this never-ending realization that with us is Christ. And we know that presence is key to our life in general because we feel it in our bones. Whether you are walking nearly with Jesus or whether you feel a thousand miles away from him, presence is a key piece in all of our lives, whether it be with God or with others. Maybe you've followed, as I have the last week, some of the news within kind of the Christian religious world of a young family in Reading whose daughter, Olive, suddenly passed away in the last week or two. Um, 
And uh, I don't know all of the details. I'll get some of these wrong. I, I share this story for a number of other reasons. Uh, but Olive passed away and her parents decided to pray that God would resurrect her. And for days they prayed over this young child. I believe she was about two years old who um, simply woke up in heaven. And parents prayed and prayed and prayed. And it caught a bit of a firestorm in the news for a number of other reasons, which I, I don't want to editorialize on. Uh, but I want to I stay focused on a people who believed so strongly in the kingdom of God breaking out that they were compelled to pray that God would raise their child from the dead. They wrote uh, in later days, since learning of the news of two-year-old Olive and her sudden death, we have sought a miracle from God to raise her from the dead. We realize this is very much out of the norm, but that's what a miracle is. It's outside of the norm. <laughs> it's outside the box of nature and our power. As the Bible testifies, God is the God of reasonable and possible as well as the God of the unreasonable and the impossible. In this process, we've asked God to fulfill our heart's desire to see his kingdom manifested in this great power. For when you are a friend of God and know that he's your heavenly father, you trust him and ask for big outlandish miracles. As a church, we've been contending for, singing about, and witnessing God's power to save and to heal and to deliver for over 50 years. So it is normal for us to ask for things and to trust him and then to glorify his name regardless of the outcome. This is what life in the kingdom is all about. In this situation, grief has not been avoided. And as we've all grieved from the moment we heard, faith isn't a denial of the facts or of our emotions. It is knowing that God cares and intervenes in the midst of them. Here is where we are. Olive has not been raised. The breakthrough we sought hasn't come. And so with the same heart of confidence in God's goodness, we receive comfort of the good shepherd. Uh, it goes on uh, for quite some other time to reflect on this, at the heart of this. And again, I want to be really, really careful. There's, you're going to search Google if you haven't already, and you're going to look up the story, and you're going to see a lot of other stuff going on around it. Um, and you can have all the opinions you need to have about the other stuff going around it. But if we could stay laser focused for a minute on a people who were so intent on the kingdom of God, which heals and delivers, that as crazy as it sounded, they prayed for days for God to raise their child. And that when God chose not to raise their child, they praised his goodness nonetheless. Whew. Wow. See, there's something in you and I that longs for presence. I don't mean gifts. We like those too. I mean to be present to one another and to be present to God. You know when you are with a friend and they aren't there. You know when you're across the table with a spouse or a child or a friend and they aren't present. It's why at my house, if we go out to dinner and pay the big bill it costs to take six adults out to dinner, there are no phones at the table. Like we know that, and I'm not, I don't say that as some self-righteous thing. I, I say that to say there's something in us that says presence matters. 
And then in these special moments, being present matters. I've had multiple conversations, long conversations this week with multiple people in our community of faith. Each who at the root of what the, the difficulty they were facing, at the root of that was a lack of presence with their spouse, with a child, with God, even with their gifts, even in one conversation, even a lack of presence with their own internal world. One friend told me, I, I can't even engage with what's going on inside me right now. I can't be present to my own self. We long for presence. Many of us will drive great distances in the next few days against all logic to spend 24 hours with family who make us crazy because we understand the power of being present. Otherwise, we would say, hey, just plug an iPhone in, lay it on the kitchen counter, and FaceTime us in, and we'll hang with you over FaceTime. FaceTime will work for a short period, but we understand the power of presence. Some of you are going to rush off and jump on an airplane with infants and put them on airplanes. This is insanity. Who does that? I'll tell you who. People who understand the longing in their soul to be present to the people who matter most to them. Few would argue that this Jesus of whom we read of in the Bible had a thing for being present with his people. Some of the most powerful stories about Jesus happen around a table where Jesus is present to what's going on. Where he says, hey, I, I, can, I can sense you over there feeling this. Why are you thinking that? At another dinner table or another gathering, he hears whispers across another table in a crowded room of two or three arguing who's greater. And he says, hey, you're not even present to what's happening right now. You're arguing about the future. Some of the greatest and most powerful stories about Jesus are about being present. And so the name of God, Emmanuel, which translates to God with us, is central to Advent, central to this idea of incarnation of God among us, God with us. But so what? Right? Why is God's presence so central? How does it encourage us in our time of need? How, how is God's presence with us through Christ intended to be experienced or felt or known. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah 7, and we will camp there for a few moments today to explore a people longing to experience God's presence and to tap in you and I to ways in which we can experience his presence even when it feels a long ways off. Pray with me, if you would. Father, Son, and Spirit, we have entered in as a people to your presence over these last several minutes in a number of ways. So we simply ask God that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit only, keep us present to you in these remaining minutes. We're gonna pick up our phones for the Bible and other things are gonna swipe in from the top or the side. God, give us the ability to be present to what you're doing in the room right now.
We're gonna think about that thing we've gotta get done this afternoon and write it down real quick so that we can tap back in and be present in these moments to what you are doing in our midst. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we would walk in your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Version. If you've got it, go there now. There are some resources in there for you and some added things that may help you along the way this week. Isaiah chapter seven. I don't know exactly how much time has passed since this moment that Isaiah has with God where the angel touches his lips and purifies him and asks the simple question, who will go for me? Who can I send? And Isaiah says, well, me, send me. I don't know exactly how much time has passed in terms of chronology, but what I do know is this is the chapter right before that. <laughs> and, and we arrive now at chapter seven, where Isaiah has said to God, I'm your guy, send me. I will go in your name. This is important. This is key to what's going on in setting the stage for this name of God, Emmanuel. Verse one of chapter seven. When Ahaz, son of Jotham and grandson of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Remelia, the king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. Now, chances are good you're already lost. Uh, if I know I was, and... I read it several times. Let me break it down for you. I, I don't, so you've got, uh, think about Israel, uh, and um, I can't communicate enough how much I hate holding a handheld microphone uh, in these moments, uh, but God will, will be gracious to me. So think about Israel as you think, you know, a little bit like my hand in this way, okay? This is Israel. And up at the very, very top would be Syria, okay? Um, the, the space in between my hand is ocean, Okay, I know this is really, really rough. And you geography nerds, like, don't corner me later and tell me how bad I got this, okay? All right, just don't do it. Um, so, uh, and, and up at the top, you've got Syria, generally speaking. In the middle area, near my index finger knuckle, you've got Israel. And, and down at the bottom, you've got Judah. Okay, so three areas. Up at the top, you've got Syria, up north. In the kind of middle-ish is Israel. And down at the bottom is Judah. Down at the bottom in this region called Judah is where Jerusalem is. So just laying this, so the king of Syria up top has gotten together with the king of Israel just to the south and said, hey, let's go down south and let's invade Judah and let's take it over. And we'll kill and we'll murder and we'll do whatever we got to do to take control of that southern region and we can be this thing. Now, What's important in all of that, without going into 45 minutes of uh, biblical history, is this idea that you had a united kingdom of Israel and Judah for a very long time, and this happens in a period of time called the divided kingdom. So Israel and Judah have been divided, and this unity has been broken. God's goodness in the region has been denied. And in chapter 7, we see what happens when God's goodness in a region has been denied, when his united kingdom has been rejected. And so these guys get together and they say, hey, let's attack. But it says at the end, however, uh, at the end of verse 1, however, they were unable to carry out their plan. Verse 2, the news had come to the royal court of Judah. 
Syria, remember, way up north, is allied with Israel, just to the south of Syria, against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear, like trees shaking in a storm. I don't want to jump to it too quickly, but I want to invite you as early as you need to in these moments together to place yourself into the story and to say, where is the territory of your life that's being invaded that is causing you to shake like a tree? That says to your own soul, I am so scared of that potential reality that I'm shaking like a leaf. A king, a king of Judah. In Jerusalem, the center of life and faith for this Jewish people, in in that center of power, they are shaking with fear. Then the Lord said, verse three to Isaiah, take your son, this is really interesting, he tells Isaiah to take his son, and and so fun to dig into that, dig into why that could be and, and all of that on your own time. I think you'll find it fruitful. He says to Isaiah, take your son down there and meet with King Ahaz. King Ahaz is the king of Judah who's scared to death. Tells him where he'll find him, verse four, tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those burned out embers of the two kings that are out to get him. Verse five. Yes, the king of Syria and Israel are plotting against him saying we will attack Judah and we will capture it for ourselves and then we will stall the sons or install the sons to become the new king of Judah. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. And we carry on into these later verses, essentially where God proclaims over Judah, it will not go down this way. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. Syria is no stronger than its capital. And he says the same of Israel. And we have to imagine King Ahaz, the king of Judah, receiving this word through Isaiah of the Lord. It will not happen. And I think we would all love to respond with, okay, well, God said it. That settles it. I believe it. And it's a great little bumper sticker. And it works awesome as a really angry meme. But it doesn't actually work in life. God settles it. God said it. That settles it. I believe it. Even in the promise of non-calamity, even even in the trusting of God to see him through, to see us through, all these things working together for good. And and in those moments where these things hit, I'm sure that you, like me at times, begin to recite the Bible verses we can call up to our memory. I, I know that God works out for the good all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we know these things to be true. And yet we still shake like a leaf. Or worse yet, shut off to God completely. Better to be scared and shake like a leaf 
But more often than not, I think we, I don't mean we as like big C Christian, I mean we, Disciples Church, I encounter it in us on a regular basis. Our response is rather than to hit our knees and say, God, I am scared to death of the future, we instead just shut off to God. He's either not real, he's not active, forget it, it's all a waste of time. I'll just watch football. Brother Lawrence writes in his beautiful masterpiece called Practicing the Presence of God, pains and sufferings are paradise to me when I suffer with God. And the greatest pleasures would be hell to me if I enjoyed them without him. He's saying these words right at the top of our hour together, your presence is a paradise. And I'm guilty at times if it's that up-tempo song and I'm clapping to sing the words and proclaim them, but to not allow them to seek into my soul. Your presence is a paradise. This is a true statement, but one that won't actually transform us unless we live into it and actually believe and live as though being in the presence of God is actually paradise. Your presence is a paradise. Okay, onto the curse. I like that part. No, we actually have to settle into that and say, your presence actually is paradise. With you, any suffering God is paradise, as opposed to without you, any pleasure is hell on earth. The psalmist writes of this long before Brother Lawrence ever did in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. Those who've been around church about 20 years remember singing this song every week. <laughs> Laughter throughout the room. Those of you who have come to faith in the last 20 years, you dodged one, I'm telling you, all right? Like ruined one of the best psalms for me ever. Um, anyway. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. Goes on in verse 10 to say, a single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. And I pause, not for some sort of performance art drama, but to just give us each a moment to say, do I actually believe it? Do I actually believe that being with God is better than being anywhere else? Do I actually live? Would I know how to live into that? Would I be willing to experiment with the activities that might help me live into the presence of God? There will come a time in each of our lives and our life collectively, if it's not already here, when everything that gives us security when everything that brings us meaning, when everything that ushers in joy will all be stripped away and taken. And when all of that happens, we cry out, 
Emmanuel, God with us. You are here, moving in our midst. We worship you. Even when I don't feel it, I believe that you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. This is who you are. This isn't what you do. This is who you are, God. And right now, I need to reflect on who you are because I don't see it. Emmanuel, God with us. So how do we engage in this? How do we actually experience God's presence when all seems out of control? And, and I, I can feel it in the room even now. Listen, Stu, um, not from everybody, but from some. Listen, Stu, if you tell me I need to sing the song a little bit longer, I'm going to punch you in the throat. Um, it doesn't work for me. I've tried it. If you tell me to read more Bible, I'm, I'm going to run out of the building on fire because I've tried it and it didn't work for me. Right? And so it's not easy, but I think it is actually pretty simple. Uh, Practicing the presence of God is about embracing incremental acts of goodness. In his book, Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard opens chapter five, pointing out that when Jesus was ready to deal with the issue of moral good and evil, he did not begin with theories about good and evil. He plunged aggressively in that conversation, which can be found in Matthew 5 and 6. He plunged into the absolute particular behaviors around anger and contempt and hate and lust and divorce and manipulation and revenge and violence and even lawsuits and begging and coercion and a whole slew of other things. So when Jesus began to deal with good and evil for his people and paint a picture for them of what God's goodness is, he didn't talk in an ethereal way about God's goodness. He talked about anger. Here's how to experience God's goodness. Here's how you're pushing off God's goodness. Jesus' concrete approach to a life of goodness ensures that we don't simply learn to talk about good and evil, but that we know when we are living God's goodness and when we are living evil. And in so living out the goodness of God and depending, of course, on the Holy Spirit to empower all these acts of goodness, we find ourselves present to God and to his work in the world. And his presence is near in our commitment to goodness. To be in God's presence is to experience his unencumbered goodness. It is a grace to be with Jesus. A balm on the soul. A tender respite from the chaos of this world. When we engage with the goodness of God and when we free ourselves or lay ourselves down or suspend our own desires to say, I'm going to lean into an act of goodness right now. We welcome God's presence in that moment. 
Now, this is not to remove the other ways in which we experience God's goodness. If you're experiencing his goodness in deep and powerful ways in prayer and and in scripture and in worship and in quiet reflection, all of those are beautiful and wonderful and ought to be practiced for us. But when his presence seems so far off, sometimes it's in a simple act of goodness a simple act of kindness that we begin to open up space for the ways of Jesus to rule and reign in our midst again. Verse 10 carries on in this text. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Remember, King Ahaz is shaking like a leaf, so fearful that they're gonna come invade Judah. And this message from the Lord comes, and it says in verse 11, ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, a confirmation that I'm not going to allow you to be overcome by Syria and Israel. Make this sign. He's saying to Ahaz, make this sign as difficult as you want. As high as the heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I I won't test the Lord like that. And then Isaiah said, listen, well, you royal family of David, isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you also exhaust the patience of my God as well? It's like, he's trying to give you a gift. Will you receive it? And so Isaiah says, okay, fine. Look, uh, the sign will be provided by the Lord. And here it is. Verse 14. All right, then. The Lord himself will give the sign. Look, exclamation point. She will give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And by the time this child's old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. This is a foreshadowing back to Elijah and to John the Baptist. For before the child is that old, the lands of your two kings, whom you fear so much, will both be deserted that his presence with you will begin to shape this picture of goodness in your midst. You and I are about to embark on Christmas break. And, and, and as I mentioned from the outset, I hope and I trust and I pray that you will gather back on Tuesday for a Christmas Eve liturgy. But in the meantime, you're gonna go shop with crazy people and you're gonna drive to be with family and you're gonna have your house overrun, or maybe for some, worse yet, you're gonna have to implant yourself into somebody else's household, and it will be so tempting to simply depart from goodness. And the, the thought here is that, well, gosh, it's just so much work to be good. You don't know my family. And I would... Submit to each of us and my own heart equally so that those acts of non-goodness, evil, if you want to call them that, if you want it to be binary, those acts of non-goodness are requiring every bit as much energy for you as goodness would. And when you and I are acting in non-goodness, we are pushing back the presence of God. We are saying in those moments, God, your presence is not a paradise to me. I don't want your presence here. I don't want your rule and reign in this situation. I'm going to put in the effort to do the opposite of goodness. 
instead of being present. Let us be the people this Christmas who arrive at that family dinner or that gathering and we are present. We're there. Father, Son, and Spirit, help us to practice your goodness this day. Help us to be present to you and to what you are up to and what it is that you want to do. Help us to celebrate your Emmanuel, God with us. We believe the word that uh, your goodness is running after us. And so, um, God, may we in these moments, whether we sing the words out, whether we sit in silence, whether we come up front and receive prayer, may we sense your goodness running after us, we pray in Christ's name. Uh, I'd love it if a few of our prayer team people could approach the front, maybe one in the back and be available. Here's a simple prayer that I might challenge you uh, to start with today. And the, the simple prayer is this, that God, help me practice your goodness today by fill in the blank. And, and when we say, help me, I, I guess the inference here is that we're praying to the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, help me practice your goodness today in this. Come receive prayer. Start the sentence with that and let the prayer team begin to pray into you. If conversely, you're waiting on a miracle today and everything that's been sung and said and leaned into today has reminded you of the miracle you're waiting for, come and ask for prayer for that. Stand to your feet if you would and let's worship together in these closing moments and engage with his goodness and in so doing, enjoy his presence.